0: For those of you who are in school, or for those of you who remember school, uh, let me ask you this question: How many of you enjoyed taking tests? Okay, I've got I've got one, um, got two, three. Okay, now we're just going to kind of test um, the testing, and that is how many of you did not enjoy taking tests. Okay, guys, you were outvoted. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I was one of those people that did not particularly enjoy taking tests. Um, I, I always felt like, well, I paid for the class. I should just get credit for it anyway. Why should I have to take it to class or test? Um, when I was in grad school, we had these things called comprehensive exams, and uh, they lasted over three days, and you only got two chances to take the test. And if you failed both times and you were kicked out of the program, which meant three years of your life had just been wasted because you didn't get any credit, you didn't get, you didn't get the degree. It was, was pretty brutal, and of course, I, I had done like many of you in the classes that I had taken, I had, had studied enough to pass. And now I had to prove that I had actually learned something. And let's passing the test and, <laughs> and proving that you learned something are two different things. So I spent three months cramming, reading, taking notes, writing stuff down. It was a time of a lot of anxiety for me. I'll never forget when the day of the first test came. Uh, I went into the library, into the basement. Uh, the tests were given in the basement of the library because it was closer to hell. And so <laughs> we, we went into the basement in the library and, and a friend of mine comes out of the bathroom and he looks pale, looks white as his sheet. And I said, man, are you okay? And he said, I just threw up. So... <laughs> I mean, all of this tension, you know, am I going to pass the test? And, and so I took the test, the test lasted over three days, and you had to wait a month until you found out the results. And here's the good news, I passed. And that was a great thing. And what do you call somebody who barely passes a test? Graduate. And that's a fantastic thing. So, so after I took the test and I learned that I passed, I found that I started feeling and acting different. I, I know it's hard to believe, but before that, I was kind of shy in class. I'd had a couple of traumatic experiences. I didn't want anybody to call on me, so I just kind of like hunkered down and, and didn't draw any attention to myself. But after I took the test and passed, I started to strut. Because I had passed comps, man, and I started offering stuff in class. I disagreed with professors because they can't take it away from you once you pass, right? It was a fantastic experience. Here's what I learned. Passing the test gives you confidence. Passing the test gives you confidence. Now, here's the question I want you to ponder today. Does God ever test us? We're starting a new series called The Unlikely. We're gonna be looking at some amazing people in the book of Judges that you would say these people could never be leaders, God could never use these people, and yet He did. But before we get there, we have to look at this prequel. And that's what the sermon today is gonna to be about. It's kind of a prequel to the whole series because we've gotta understand what was going on and about how God really was testing His people. Now, the book of Judges is one of the most challenging books in all of the Old Testament. To understand because it is a book where there is war there's murder there's betrayal and it would make a great movie but we sometimes look at it and say is this the same God that Jesus referred to as father so it's a real important book for us to dive in and understand some historical background you'll remember that the people of God called Israelites have come out of slavery from Egypt They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then Joshua, this amazing charismatic leader, leads them to conquer these different, what we call nations in the land of Palestine, which was occupied by the Canaanites. Now, let me explain the idea of nations for you. We think of nations as states with boundaries and fences and borders, but it was not that way for them. Their idea of nation was city-states. So they had cities that would be walled. These would be cities of 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 people. Every city had a king, and that was considered a nation. There would be agricultural land around it. There are always these wars between these nation-states. And when Joshua is leading the people that keep conquering these cities, you may remember the most famous one when Joshua conquered Jericho and they marched around Jericho seven times and the walls fall and they come in. Okay, so that's the way it works. Now, when the land is mostly conquered, but not all the way, God says, okay, stop, settle down. And we're actually told in another part of Joshua and Judges that God does not allow the people to completely conquer the land for two reasons. The first is he knows there's not enough Israelites to go in and occupy the land and keep it producing. And in that agricultural society, if a field is left fallow or unused for, say, two, three, four, five years, it reverts to woods and bramble. It's very hard to clear. They do not have caterpillar equipment. And so they would have to go back and reclaim it. So God leaves these states there. But here's the second more profound reason. God wanted every generation to learn to depend on him they would have to fight their own battles. Now, this is where we pick up the story in verse 7 of the book of, Joshua, uh, book of Judges, chapter 2. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. These people had experienced God. They had seen the fiery pillar at night. They had seen the cloud. They had been led by God through the wilderness. They'd seen the Jordan River part. Uh, They had seen God help them win battles that were unwinnable. These people had experienced God personally in their lives. Their children, however, did not have the same experience. You see, we're told in verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. I want you to listen to this. It's real important. They did not know the Lord. You say, well, how's that possible? Surely their parents talked about God. Surely their parents told them the stories. Of course they did. But in the Bible, whenever you see the word know, K-N-O-W, it means experiential knowledge. To know abstractly about God is not enough. We need to know, experience God as a living being who intervenes, who is personal, who's acting in our lives and in our world. And this generation doesn't see it. There's a disconnect. I I remember hearing my mother talk about uh, growing up in a house with no electricity. I couldn't imagine that. Can you? In fact, I don't think she lived in a house where there was electricity until she married my father, which was maybe part of the incentive of marrying him. And I just imagine what it's going to be like for me one day to sit down with my grandson and say, Shep, when I was your age, we only had three TV stations. And we only got one of them when the wind was blowing right. And he's going to look at me with those big brown eyes and he's going to say, Papa, what's a TV? I mean, because he's going to have a different experience. Every generation has to have their own experience with God. Now, if you are a parent and you're a follower of Jesus, you want your kids to know Jesus. You want them to experience what you've experienced. You want them to have faith, but you can't have faith for them. What you can do is provide opportunities for them. I think that's one of the reasons why it's important for families to come to church and worship together. It's important for them to do things together, to talk about the message, to talk about what they learn. Now, the Israelites were told, did evil. What does it mean to do evil? It meant they crossed the boundaries. What were the boundaries? Well, they're summed up in something we call the Ten Commandments. And God gave these to the people and we're actually told that the first commandment was this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why does God make such an exclusive claim? No other gods before me. Because this is God's prerogative. There is one God according to God And all other gods are false. And God does not want you chasing another god and being disappointed. He doesn't want you to waste your time seeking forgiveness and grace and peace and strength that cannot be given to you by another god. That's why God says, I want you to have one god, and that's me. Now, this generation rejects that. They say, we don't want one God. We want to serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. You go, what are those? Well, Baal was the Canaanite rain god. And you say, rain god? Why is that such a big deal? Remember, it's an agricultural society. And in the land of Palestine, you get most of your rainfall in three to four months out of the year. No rain those three, four months out of the year, what happens to your crops? You don't have any. And if you don't have any crops, what do you do for food? There's no Piggly Wiggly to go to. You starve. So more rain equals more crops, which equals more security, which equals more wealth. Our equivalent to bail would be money and wealth. And let's face it many of us have that idea it's kind of part of the american ethos that if we have enough money we will be secure how many of you think a billion dollars is a lot of money if you're not raising your hand please see me after the service i think a billion dollars is a lot of money if you have a billion dollars would you be secure? So you think, well, let's, let's. before you go shake your head no, cause you're in church and you know, that's supposed to be the answer. Let's think about this. Well, it does mean you wouldn't have to worry about shelter. You wouldn't have to worry about food. You could send your kids to college. You could buy a college to send your kids to, right? You would have a lot of opportunities with a billion dollars. Would it buy you security in your relationships? Would it buy you attachment? Would a billion dollars buy you happiness in marriage? Ask Bill and Melinda Gates. Now, the other God that's mentioned is referred to in the plural as the asterisks. Um, you can, um, uh, that's the plural. The singular is, of her name is Astarte, and she is the goddess of love and war. And you think about, What's strange? Why would they have a goddess of love and war? But any of you who are married understand why the goddess is the goddess of love and war, right? Because you feel conflict with the people you love most. And so uh, the uh, goddess Ashtarti, uh was the god that you would worship so that you could Reproduce so that you could have a lot of children now you may remember your great-great-grandparents came from families of 10 12 15 kids why did they have 15 kids two words free labor they were farmers more kids were more hands to work in the fields but this goddess is not just a goddess for having a lot of kids it's also so that your cows would have more calves your sheep would have more lambs and your goats would have more goatlings or whatever you call baby goats. Uh, so, so you, you want to have a lot. You want fertility. You see how this connects? It connects with the wealth we just talked about, right? But if you're producing more and more, it does help you also feel comfort. If you can send your kids out to work in the fields, you don't have to go. If you can have a lot of cows to sell, it means you don't have to work as hard, you have comfort. And of course, this whole idea of love is a little more attractive, right? Um, Tim Keller, who's a noted uh, uh, writer and pastor in New York City, has written that he thinks that one of the gods we worship in modern America is romantic love. And it's the idea, if I can just find my soulmate, all my problems will be solved. One of the toughest jobs I have when I do premarital counseling is convincing the couple that they are married and marrying flawed people. That marriage is not going to solve problems. Oh, it solves some, but, but it's going to create some, right? Now, some of you are nodding a little too vigorously. <laughs> the, the, the reality is... That then when things come up and, and we, we struggle, we think, well, we married the wrong person. So we worship the god of love. And the Israelites saw their neighbors, the Canaanites, worshiping these gods, and frankly, it looked a little better. Let's worship wealth and security and comfort and love. And that sounds a lot better than worshiping a God who says, You'll have no other gods before me. Right? I think sometimes we do the same thing. And especially in American evangelicalism. In American evangelicalism, the most pervasive thing that I see is that we all want to be wealthy and we all want to have somebody who loves us and we want enough Jesus to go to heaven. We're worshiping three gods. And so what's God's reaction? Verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, when they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. And your reaction might be, well, that's not very nice. God's not supposed to get angry. I mean, it doesn't feel fair for God to get angry just because they were shopping around for a few other gods. If you think that God cannot get angry, you reduce him to a passionless being who doesn't really care about the people he made. Think about this. Think about this. Those of you who are married men, those of you who are married men, if you come home and say to your wife, you know, I love you, but frankly, after, you know, 10, 12, 15 years of marriage, it's gotten a little dull. I'm going to stay married to you, but I want a side chick. Now, I only know about side chicks because I read it on the internet, okay? <laughs> I have no personal experience with this. And you say, you know, just two or three, honey, and, and it means, I'm not, no, I, I love you. I'm going to stay with you. Okay, maybe a little bit too much going on over here about side chicks. Okay, so, so but you're, you, you know, you're saying, I still love you. I'm going to stick with you, and I hope you're okay with that. Okay, women who are married, what is your reaction Okay, now some of the guys are thinking, the reaction of my wife will depend on if her pistol is loaded. (laughs) Now here's the weird thing, I know, I know. We live in an era where people say, but you know, now we have polyamorous marriage and they're gonna have a lot of partners and it's all okay. You've seen it on the documentaries that you claim not to watch. Here's what I know. It's not real polyamorous relationships don't stand the test of time and somebody, somebody, somebody always, always gets hurt. Why should we expect God to react differently? God's angry because he cares so much for his people and this may be one of the hardest things for us to understand. It's hard for me to understand that God gets angry because he loves so deeply. And so he introduces a great motivator, pain. God previously has fought for his people. Now we're told his hand is against them. Raiders come in, probably from what is now modern-day Saudi Arabia, from the Arabian desert. They come in, they steal, they plunder, they grab, they take away. The Israelites go out and try to fight them, and what happens? they lose, they lose. They lose. When you are defeated, it is wise to ask, is God sending me a message? When you are defeated, it is wise to ask, is God sending me a message? Now let me quickly say, I want you to hear clearly, not every defeat is a message from God. And this is where it's hard. It's so hard because I can't give you a formula where I can say, yeah, that definitely is a message from God, but this isn't. Okay, I can't do that. This is where the relationship you have with God is personal. But it is wise to say, okay, God, is there a message here? You need to examine your heart. And usually a good place to start is, am I putting out anything else ahead of God? Years ago, a woman had asked to see me and she came in and she said, I do not know what I'm going to do with my teenage daughter. She doesn't listen to me and she is very rebellious. And my first thought was she's normal, right? And so, but the, mom, the more the mom talked, she kept saying this phrase over and over and over. She kept saying, she is my whole world. My daughter is my whole world. She is the center of my life. I just love her so much. She's. if anything happens to her, I just don't know if I could take it. I, I, just, I, just, I, I just can't stand this. Well, she was sharing her anxieties, but her anxieties were leading her to control. And after about 30 minutes, she paused and I said, well, there's a lot here. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not a professional counselor, but let me gently suggest that maybe one of the first things to consider is you've made your daughter the center of your world, and no person can bear the weight of worship. It's true. You and I were not designed by God to be worshiped. We think we want it, but we can't take it and especially not if you're a teenage girl. And I said, try centering your life on something else. I said, I would suggest God, naturally. But don't build your whole life around your daughter. I wish I could tell you the story has a happy ending. It doesn't, because the woman did not take that counsel. She did not go to counseling as I suggested. She, she didn't seek help for her daughter. Instead, she just held on tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And the daughter became more and more the center of her world. And when the daughter was 17, she left. It was about 10 years before the mom heard from her again. And so when you're defeated, I think it is wise to ask, is God sending me a message? Now, now life isn't working out for the Israelites, right? I mean, they are getting robbed, their life is unstable, they're always under a threat. So we're told they are in great distress. The word distress means agitation. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. How merciful is our God that these people who have been disloyal, who have betrayed him, God still says to them, I care about you. I care about you. And so he hears their cries. He gives them a judge. Now, the judge was not a legal judge the way we think about it. The judge in those days would have been a leader, someone who takes action, gathers the people, and who does something that God wants done. It's a reminder to us that leaders matter. Matter. And God works through ordinary people, unlikely people, to do extraordinary things in the book of Judges. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next five weeks. But it's also a reminder to us that every one of us who is a leader, you matter. You make a difference. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm not a leader. Remember, leadership is influence. And if you have influence over another person, you are a leader, whether you identify yourself that way or not. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a teacher, you're a leader. If you supervise anybody at work, you're a leader. But if you have influence, in a friendship, in a relationship, you are a leader. Let me prove to you, right after this service, many of you are going to get in the car, and one of you is going to turn to the other one and say, "You want to get something to eat." And that person is then going to say, "Sure, what do you want?" And then the other person, the person who started the conversation, was going to say, I don't know, what do you want? And then that person is going to say, why don't you suggest something? And the person says, well, you know, I kind of feel like breakfast. Let's go to Waffle House. I need some grease in my system. And then the other person, who was the responder in the conversation, is going to say, I don't feel like breakfast That person is female. (laughs) Who's the leader in that conversation? Who has influence? You may not think of yourself as a person of influence, but if you can shape another person's decision, guess what? You're a leader. And I'm not worried about getting a table at Waffle House today. Are you gonna let God use you to lead? Now here's the downside of these judges being raised up. It only lasts as long as the judge lives. We're told in verse 19, but when the judge died, the people returned to the ways uh, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods, serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. You wanna say, why don't these people get it? Why don't these people get it? When they serve God, life is better. It's not perfect, they still have troubles, but life is better. But when they're not serving God, when they're serving the Baals and the Asherahs, there's these raiding parties that keep coming in and robbing them. Why don't they get it? Denial is the strongest in a pattern of self-destruction. Denial is the strongest when you are in a pattern of self-destruction. Ask any addict. You can be morbidly obese and be in denial and say, I don't have a problem with compulsive over You, you can get your fourth DUI and say, I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe, most tragically of all, you can be in an abusive relationship and say, I'm not in an abusive relationship. Sometimes I just make my husband mad. Denial is strongest when you're in this pattern of self-destruction. And that's the pattern that they're in. Now everything's gonna come together in verses 20 through 22 therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. This passage makes us uncomfortable. Three times now we've been told God is angry. And we get it, his anger comes because he cares so much, but he's angry because they're not doing their part. They had agreed they would be his people. They had agreed to the covenant. They're welching on the deal. In every relationship that is healthy, both parties have to come and give. And we know that, we say that. But the truth is, most of us, most of us in some form say, okay, I'm going to give this, but I don't want to give that. That's what they're doing. Now, we need to acknowledge in our relationship with God, he gives the most, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But we still have our part. I think too many of us who say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. What what we forget is if you ask Jesus into your heart, that's the starting point. The next thing you've got to do is take steps. You've got to actually follow Jesus. You cannot be a passive follower of Jesus Christ. And so God was angry with them. Do you think God might be angry with our country? Country to whom has been given great wealth and great comfort and great freedom. Maybe a more personal question to interact with. Could God be angry with you? Now again, again we don't like to think in these terms, right? I don't wanna think that God could be angry with me. But do you think it would be a healthy relationship if God just sat there and said, okay, I love you, but I will never get angry with you. Is that healthy? No. God's anger comes out of his deep, deep love for us. So, why could God be angry with you? Again, this is where I can't give you a formula. This is so specific to you. But let me just offer a couple possibilities. God may be angry with you because you take him for granted. God might be angry with you because you won't acknowledge the truth about your own life. God might be angry with you because you keep thinking you've been successful because you worked hard, you put in those hours, and you passed the test. And you forgot it was God who gave you the ability to do all of those things. God might be angry with you because you signed up and you said, I'm gonna follow Jesus. But when it got hard, you said, I didn't sign up for that. In verse 22, we're plainly told that God says, I will not drive out the nations, I will test you. To me, this is God being very fair. This is God saying, okay, I'm gonna give you a test. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to show me that you really will be loyal to me. Does God still test people like this? Yes, yes, he does. Now again, again, not everything that happens in your life is a test. But it is a test to see, there are tests to see how your faith responds under stress. And, and that's going to help you. So, so like when you, you have a business deal that falls through, it can be a test. And it might be a test to see, are you thinking about how you get even? Are you thinking about how God has something better for you? There can be tests from God in marriage. I mean, we promise for better, for worse. And when worst comes, we always seem surprised. And God says, okay, I wanna see. I wanna see. Are are you going to turn to me and say, okay, God, what do I need to learn in this? There can be tests when someone you love dies too young. Boy, I've been through this test. It's just so tempting, so tempting to say, okay, God, if that's the way you're gonna play this, I'm out instead of saying, like David did in the Psalms, saying, hey God, I don't think this is very fair. God, I'm kind of mad at you about this. God, this hurts. God can handle your anger back. And what happens when you pass the test? Now, just like when I took comps and I passed, you gain some confidence and you're ready for the next test, and you're ready to take your next step. Every test you pass, you gain greater spiritual confidence. Listen, listen, the reason so many of us, me, you, why we struggle in our walk with Christ, with Jesus, it's because we're not passing the tests. We just complain about there shouldn't be one. Instead of saying, okay, God, this is a test and I'm going to need you. You Now you may have heard this whole message and gone, okay, Clay, so what? So what? I get it. God gets angry. God tests us. Okay, here's what I want you to know, first of all and most important. God knows you're going to fail some tests. God knows you're going to fail some tests. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive you for all the times you fail. There is grace. There is God saying, this is a test, and yeah, you didn't do so good. There's grace. There's forgiveness. To me, that is one of the best reasons to follow Jesus. You can live a life of grace and not feel the pressure of having to be perfect. Boy, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I'm still trying to learn that. but if you can really embrace it, it changes everything. So on the morning of when I took comps, one of the mornings, so we're back in that room taking that test, we're just about to start, and one of the professors, the name was Dr. Ward, he comes into the room, he was not one of my professors, but he comes into the room, he puts his arm around one of his students and said, Don't be uptight. I'm going to give you an A. I'm in the wrong field. I should have studied with Dr. Ward. That's grace. And that's what your heavenly father does for every one of us who decides to accept Jesus and follow him. But there's more. There's more, I think, that we really need to embrace. And this, I think, applies even if you're not a believer, okay? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus. Um, I think every one of us is in one of three places in life. You are either just coming out of a test, or you're in the middle of a test, or you're about to go into a test. I I think that's true for everybody. And I think what this passage really reminds me is I need to think about how I'm going to respond before I'm in the middle of it. And so I just want to offer you just some gentle wisdom I think we can get from this passage. The first thing is, if you're coming out of a test, you need to ask, Father, what was I supposed to learn? What's I supposed to learn from that? I mean, that's whether you pass or fail. Father, what am I supposed to learn from this test? I was putting out pine straw yesterday. I was thinking about something that happened in my life 40 years ago. And all of a sudden I had a thought that I'd never had before. Now, as a believer, I believe that is God speaking to me through the Holy Spirit in my life. And I think God was saying, here's something you weren't ready to learn 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. But I want you to learn it now. You need to ask, what am I supposed to learn from this test? Now, if you're in a test, it is appropriate to pray the prayer that every student prays when they're taking a test, and that is, Father, help me pass. You've seen the bumper stickers. As long as there are tests, there will be prayer in school. As long as you live, there will be tests, and you ought to pray for God to help you pass. Now, what does passing mean? I don't think this is on an A, B, C, D, or F scale. I don't know how God measures all this, and I don't even think he does, but I I, I think that somehow in that test, if you can pray, God, whatever this test is about, please help me pass. Help me. Help me. Because isn't that the very nature of love? Love wants to help. And our God says to you, I want to help you. Now, here's the the next prayer, and that is to say, if you are about to go into a test, pray, God, give me strength. God, give me strength. You know, I know know some of you are dealing with aging relatives, and you're thinking, how am I going to have to take, how, how do I take care of them? And let me just tell you, you're about to enter a test. You really are. So pray for strength. Pray for strength. Is some of you about to change life you know any change of life when whether it's birth of a child starting a marriage any of it it's a test and and pray god give me some strength now you say well clay this is such a happy thought to end a message on the good news is is sometimes sometimes a long interval between tests enjoy those times they are called spring break now don't enjoy them the way other people enjoy spring break okay but but enjoy that time enjoy that time but just keep it in mind but if you're in that test right now say god i need help if you see the test come and say god give me strength if the test is behind you say god what was i supposed to learn from that now if you're not a follower of jesus you're not a follower of jesus real quick here's what i know you do worship a god It may be a God of comfort, it may be a God of wealth, you don't even think about it as God. Even if you say there is no God, you are worshiping the idea that there is no God. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, I think that's just true. The question I think you have to wrestle with is when test time comes, does my God come through? When test time comes, does my God come through? And to have faith in Jesus means that we say, Yes, he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being with us in the testing time. You will give us help if we ask. Forgive us for the times that we fail the test and help us to learn and and be strengthened for the next time. And Father, I want to pray for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, that today they would accept him as their Savior and their Lord. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.